Good morning. Um, this morning's scripture is from Hebrew 13, verses 20 to 25. Um, I invite you to stand up and read the word of God along with me. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. Grace be with all of you. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Good morning, guys. How are you? Is everybody doing this morning? Good, good. It's good to gather with you on this Sunday after Easter. Thankful to be here this morning. I know earlier this week there was a forecast that it might snow like a foot yesterday. Uh, so thankful that didn't happen so that we could be together this morning. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. It's just good to gather with you. Uh, as Tom said, if you're new here, we're grateful that God brought you to be with us this morning uh, to worship our God and King and now to open up his word. So let's go to the Lord in prayer before we jump into Hebrews 13 this morning. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that we're able to gather together on this Sunday. And Lord, I pray that as we come to your word, that you would calm and quiet us this morning. That you would help us to set aside and lay at your feet any distractions that might be going on in our life right now. Things that are occupying our thoughts and our attention. Lord, things that are vying for our affections. Lord, we just want to lay those down before you. And I pray that you would help us to be attentive this morning to your word. Your Holy Spirit would take the word that you've given us, your inspired and holy word, take it and apply it to our lives and allow it not just to be something we hear with our ears and maybe think about in our minds, but actually would impact our hearts and realign our affections on you. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would work in this time that you would allow your word to be effective in our lives this morning for our good and for your glory. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. You know, something that's kind of fallen out of regular use in our everyday lives is letter writing. It's not something we do very often where we really sit down to write one another letters. With things like text messages and FaceTime, we don't spend a lot of time doing something like that. But for generations and generations, letter writing was a key way to communicate with one another. There's a website I discovered this week called Letters of Note. And this website, it catalogs and displays all kinds of letters and notes from all different kinds of people. Letters and notes written by different authors and poets, politicians, actors, musicians, scientists, and on and on throughout history. And they collect these letters and kind of post them and, and just let you read through some of the correspondence they had in different ways. A lot of these letters are handwritten and a lot of them are typed. But almost every letter, if it includes a PS, that PS is handwritten by the author. PS stands for postscript. 
It's an additional remark at the end of a letter, usually after the signature, and it's meant to provide some additional information, some additional comment on whatever the letter's been about. P.S. remarks can be about all kinds of things. One letter that I looked at was written by a former president of the United States, and it had a handwritten P.S., And this handwritten P.S. was the president imploring the person that he was writing to to basically listen to everything he said and to act on behalf of the subject of the letter because of his personal relationship with this individual. The rest of the letter was likely written by an aide of his, but the P.S. was personal because it was written by the president himself. Well, today we come to our last sermon in our series in the book of Hebrews. We've spent almost a year walking through the book of Hebrews. This is the 40th sermon that's been preached on the book of Hebrews. Last week, we got to celebrate Easter together. It was an awesome time to be in God's Word, to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And we we looked at some of the verses that Anusha just read, Hebrews 13, 20 through 21. This benediction that the author gives to the people he's writing to and to you and me. A benediction is a blessing that's being declared to and spoken over God's people. And in this particular benediction, it was an encouragement given to them and to us that the resurrecting God and risen shepherd gives peace. And he gives hope in the midst of a chaotic and confusing world and in the midst of the own chaos and confusion that might exist in our own lives. Well, today we come to the last few verses in the book of Hebrews, and they really serve as kind of a biblical P.S. As we just read, you saw that he kind of concludes that benediction with amen, which is usually the end of something. But then he writes a little bit beyond that. The author has a concluded his sermon-like letter, but he wants to cap off this letter with a few personal lines. And so as we jump into these final words from the author, And close out our series in Hebrews today. My hope is simply this, that we will see that Jesus really is better. That he really is better. And that God, by his grace, will help us as his people to encourage us so that we might encourage one another to live like that is absolutely 100% true. So let's go ahead and jump into Hebrews 13 and the book of Hebrews for one last time in this sermon series. The main focus of these last few verses is verse 22, where the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. Appeal here has the sense of a plea. It's an imploring. It isn't kind of a a take it or leave it. Like, well, if you want to pay attention or you want to listen, that's fine. Whatever it is that you want to do is what you should do. No, he's, he's urging them to listen. He's imploring them. A strong call is given to them to heed willingly and respond joyfully to what he's written. And who is he appealing to? Well, the text says, brothers. Now, in the original language, and you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says this, the plural word for brothers oftentimes encapsulated or meant brothers and sisters. This is important for us, not only for this, but as we read all of Scripture. Because what we're seeing here is that this isn't just written to men. It's written to the whole church, saved from their sin, reconciled and restored to God. God's word is for all of God's people. Every ethnicity, men and women. And what he's saying is, I implore you, family. I implore you, family. 
Because that's who we are now. If you are in Christ, if you, as we talked about last week, if you've been united to Jesus through his death and his resurrection, you are united to Christ. You are in him. If you're united to Jesus, then you're united to one another as well. This postscript is personal and it's for the community of the redeemed. So what exactly is he appealing for them to do? Well, he says to bear with his word of exhortation. His word of exhortation isn't what just came prior in chapter 13. He's talking about everything he's written so far, which he says is brief, right? And that's kind of funny, right? He says, what I've written to you briefly after 13 chapters. Now, exhortation is the same word that the author used in Hebrews 3.13, where he called us to exhort one another every day. Exhort one another every day. Exhort doesn't mean to beat people down. It doesn't mean to rebuke them or kind of punch them in the face with truth. Exhort means to encourage. But it isn't encouragement in a, in a feely, fluffy, flighty kind of way. Like, well, I don't want to unnecessarily hurt anyone. I just kind of gently encourage or give a pat on the back. No, this kind of biblical exhortation, biblical encouragement is a call to action. And it's a call to action that's rooted in love. A call to action that's rooted in commitment to one another. And what has been the overarching message of this word of exhortation? That Jesus is better. He's better than anything this world offers to you. He's better than anything that this world promises to you. So why does he say to bear with this word of exhortation? Bear with is about enduring even when it's uncomfortable. The Apostle Paul in the book of Colossians calls us to do that with one another. Bear with one another. In other words, you you need to endure with one another even when things are uncomfortable. But here the author of Hebrews is calling us to do that with God's word. His living and active word that he's called us to believe. Called us to live. Called us to believe and live like Jesus is better. So why does he call us to bear with that? Well, because the reality is some of the words he's written, some of the things he's called us to aren't always comfortable. They aren't always easy for the original audience that he's writing to and for you and me. So you and I live in a world that is set against God and his kingdom. Ten out of ten times our world will promote the kingdom of self. Where it says that you're on the throne of your life. You are the master of your life, the captain of your ship. It's you and your needs that matter the most. And and I would say depending on your background, you can either gravitate towards a religious or irreligious response to the promotion of the kingdom of self. And what I mean by that is if you're tempted to embrace the kingdom of self, then you can head towards what we call irreligion. That is to say that you're, you want to make the rules for your own life, set the standards for your own life to follow. And by doing that, you reject any inkling, any idea that something else might be placed over you by some kind of deity or religious organization saying, well, I'm throwing off any of those laws because I've created my own, my own standards which to live by. I am my own person. So you could gravitate towards irreligion. And embrace the kingdom of self. Or you can be tempted, like this little church that the author was writing to, was tempted to go towards the religious. 
That is in reaction to the temptations of the call to live the ethic of the kingdom of self. You say, well, I don't believe that's good. I'm going to reject that. But by rejecting that, you believe that in order to be good, in order to be right, in order to have a right relationship with God or whatever your conception of God is, you need to do stuff. You have to achieve. You have to perform. You need to check boxes off in your life to show God that you're worthy. See, both the religious and irreligious route, both those temptations and tendencies, they promise you something. They promise you if you follow your own standards and rules of life, or if you seek to do a bunch of things to earn favor from God, that by doing that, you will receive comfort and satisfaction, joy, peace, and hope. That in those things, you'll find worth and value, significance, and meaning for your life. They're on the irreligious side saying, hey, get what's yours. Make as much money as you possibly can. Do whatever you need to do to serve you. You do you. The religious side of things says, well, you need to, if you want to be right with God, if you don't want to spend an eternity in hell, then you better be reading your Bible more and you better serve as much as possible and you better give as much money as you possibly can because if you don't do those things, then you're not going to be okay. But see, neither of those routes can deliver. The only promise they can come through on is that they will both lead you to death. See, the irony of both tendencies is that self reigns supreme, whether it's the religious or irreligious. And self is at the center of our sin. And that's why you and I are separated from God. We've asserted ourselves to be like God. And we've been separated from him because of our sin separated from the one true living and loving God. And I think all of us can relate to these temptations because all of us at different points in our life seek to find hope in something else besides God. But see what the whole book of Hebrews is seeking to do, what the author is appealing to his audience, his original audience, and to us is to consider that even when things are uncomfortable, even when things are difficult in this life, that we can trust and follow Jesus, believing that he really is better. Why? Because he really, really is. It's only in and through Jesus and Jesus alone that you can have all those things that are promised to you by the world. Only Jesus can bring them to fruition in your life. Comfort, satisfaction, joy, peace, hope, worth and value, significance and meaning come in and through Christ. This personal letter to this church, written by a pastor who loves and cares for them, it isn't meant, though, to be an intellectual exercise. It isn't information or growing in knowledge for knowledge's sake. When we started this series almost a year ago, encouraged us and challenged us to be aware of the temptation that might even crop up within us, that we would walk through Hebrews theologically, but not personally. There's all kinds of theology, all kinds of talk about who God is. And and you may have thought then, and you may be thinking now, well, that's okay because I'm not a theologian. I'm not going to do that. But the reality is all of us are theologians. Because all of us, whether you call yourself a follower of Jesus or not, not, all of us have thoughts about God. All of us have beliefs about God. That's what theology is. So even if you're an atheist, and you don't believe in the existence of God, that in and of itself is a theological statement and belief. 
What this means then is that Hebrews is for all of us. So even as we close out this letter, you have to assess, you have to be aware that you might engage all of this truth that's in Hebrews. You might think deeply about it. You might be in awe of all the richness of the truth that's in this book, but you maybe still haven't figured out what God is saying to you. See, as we said at the beginning of this series, the author of Hebrews is not a 30,000 foot view sterile, stoic, ivory tower academic. He has the heart of a shepherd and a deep love for God's people. And what he has done all throughout this letter is seek to take transcendent truth about a transcendent God, a God who's high and lifted up, and to make that truth imminent and close and personal, just like the God and Savior he's writing about. And he began it all by declaring that Jesus is better because Jesus is the full, final, and last word of God. Now what I want to do is I want to take some time to read God's word over you this morning. To go back and look at some of the things that the author has said to us throughout the book of Hebrews. So that we might believe that Jesus really is better. So if you're finishing up a note right now, finish it up and then put your pen down. Just listen to God's word read over you this morning. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, the author begins like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the power of his word. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is who Jesus is. He's better than any previous word that's come to God's people through prophets, different messengers. He's better than the very messengers of God, the angels of God, because he's the son of God and the savior of the world. Who God created the world through and put all things in subjection under. So the author goes on in Hebrews chapter 2, 1 through 4, and says, Therefore, in light of who Jesus is, in light that he's the full and final last word of God, that he made purification for our sins, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Are you drifting this morning? For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Are you neglecting your salvation this morning? It was declared at first by the word of the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. He goes on in chapter 2, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them, to call us brothers, sisters. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it was not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Are you feeling temptation this morning? Are you feeling weakness this morning? Jesus is better because Jesus is not only the founder of our salvation who is made like us, he sets us free from all those things. He sets us free from slavery to sin and death. Then he wasn't just better than the angels, he's better than Moses. Hebrews chapter 3, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is better than Moses because Moses actually pointed to Jesus. To the coming of Christ, the final mediator who would reconcile all of humanity to God through his sacrifice on the cross. And it's because of this truth that the author five times throughout the book of Hebrews warns us. He warns us not to neglect that salvation. He warns us not to fall away from God by chasing after other things. Later on in Hebrews 3, he says, then take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another. Exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. We need to encourage one another. We need to help one another continue to believe Jesus is our only hope. And so in Hebrews 4, he reminds us that an eternal rest is still to come, that we find ourselves in this now and this not yet, that Christ's kingdom has been inaugurated and begun, but Christ will come again to bring us all the way home. So then, you and I in this life can't live haphazardly, but must purposefully follow King Jesus. So he exhorts us again in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace for help, to, to help in time of need. In Hebrews chapter 5, he begins to unpack more of the fact that Jesus is a better high priest because Jesus was perfect unlike the other high priests and he became the source of eternal salvation. And then in Hebrews chapter 6, he breaks into another warning telling us don't neglect this salvation. See, the reality is many of us can know about God but not actually know God. Maybe you grew up in the church, you've been around spiritual things all your life, but you don't have an actual personal relationship with Jesus. You've never actually trusted in him. You've never actually come to him to be saved from your sin. The author says, but if we keep holding fast to Jesus, we won't be set aside and we won't be disappointed. Even when life is difficult, even when life is challenging as we live in this broken down world, So he encourages us later in Hebrews chapter 6, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. See, Jesus is not only a better high priest, he's a different kind of high priest altogether. Like Melchizedek appears to be in the Old Testament, Jesus, as the Son of God, has no beginning and no end, but is a priest forever. He's the eternal Son of God who is the King of peace for all who believe. So the author says in Hebrews chapter 7, this reality makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number. Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. And no one's too far gone from God's grace. No one's too far gone for Jesus to be able to save. No one can wander too far away for Jesus to redeem. The author goes on to say, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who's been made perfect forever. And in Hebrews 8, the author proclaims, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. 
This better covenant that he speaks of is what God spoke of through the prophet Jeremiah hundreds of years before Christ came. That he will be our God and we will be his people and he will write the word of his law on our hearts and that he'll be merciful towards our sin and our shortcomings and remember them no more. How in the world can a holy God do that? A righteous God do that? A completely just God do that? How? It's through the perfect sacrifice of a perfect Savior who didn't offer the blood of sacrifices from animals over and over and over and over again. No, he offered himself. In Hebrews chapter 9, then it says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he, Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more? How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Then, church, how does this affect us? How, how should this encourage us? What are we supposed to do with this? How does this help us to find rest and peace in a world that is assaulting us constantly with false gospels preached by false saviors and false messiahs? Well, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 10, therefore, in light of everything that he's said so far, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence, confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, since all that is true, therefore let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We have confidence because of what Christ has done for us and how much we need each other to remember that. To remind one another of that truth, to gather together regularly, to fan the flame of faith and hope in Jesus and Jesus alone, believing that he is better than anything this world can offer to us. And not to shrink back, but keep moving forward in faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith isn't a blind leap. Faith isn't even a belief in God, it's believing God, taking him at his word, believing that he is faithful and true to his promises, his plans, and his people. And we have so many examples throughout the history of God's people 
who exemplify and show us what a picture of strong faith looks like and imperfect faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, we see this whole long list of examples. Some men and women that we see and we know about, even through their falterings and failings, show their faith. And then there's others that we don't know who they are. Yet we continue to see them live with a hope for the restoration of all things. So what are we to do in light of their example of faith in the faithfulness of God? Hebrews 12, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us together run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, sometimes we're going to struggle along the way. Life can be challenging and difficult at times. Things happen to us. People hurt us. People sin against us. We exist in a broken world and the effects of sin are all around us. Sometimes it's just the struggle in our own life with sin in our own hearts that we're still battling against. Where sin seeks to take us down and take us out. I've wrestled with that in my own life. That's been my journey of continuing to try and follow Jesus but find myself at times struggling with my own sin and my own pride and my own issues and wanting to be like God instead of trusting in Him. But here the author is saying, keep running, keep fixing your eyes on Jesus. Knowing that even through the difficulty, often it's because God is disciplining you because he loves you. The treating you as his beloved children, refining you to make you more like Jesus. So as you seek to believe, as you seek to live like Jesus is better, struggling all along the way, Hebrews 12, 12 through 13 tells you, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees and make straight, straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. We find ourselves in a world that wants to pull you all different kinds of directions. A world that champions individualism at the expense of others. But see, God's people are different because our risen king has established a kingdom that cannot be shaken, Hebrews twelve twenty eight tells us. And we need one another to be and do all that God has called us to be and do, to believe and live like Jesus is better in the midst of the chaos and confusion of our world. So the author concludes his letter to us with four short but deeply profound and important words that we looked at a few weeks ago. Let brotherly love continue. Encourage one another. Love one another. Spur one another on. Fan the flame of faith in one another so that it might grow into a roaring bonfire in your life, that you might have a zeal for God, that you might seek to see the mission of God move forward, that more and more people, our neighbors and the nations, might know of our Redeemer. Guard one another, help one another, so we're not led astray by false teaching and false gospels. Why? In Hebrews 13, he tells us, because we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him. Let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city. 
but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share, with what, share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sojourn, our God has come to rescue us from our greatest enemy and bring remedy to our greatest infirmity, our sin and our rebellion against our holy God. He's come to redeem and restore and reconcile us to himself through the sacrifice of his son, our Savior, Jesus. Jesus, who is better because Jesus alone brings life in places of death and light in places of darkness. So when things are challenging and hard, when you're tempted to walk away from him because of your struggles with sin or your own suffering and gravitate towards the religious or the irreligious, may you instead turn to the good news of our resurrecting God and risen shepherd and believe. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen, amen, and amen. And the author's right. What he's saying here is brief. Because the depths of the riches of God and his grace shown and lavished in and through the person and work of Jesus is unending and eternal. We could talk about this stuff forever. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul tells us it's going to take all eternity for God to explain his grace to us. This is brief. This letter, this 13-chapter book that we've spent 40 sermons in looking at is just the tip of the iceberg of the mammoth realities that it speaks of. And so as sojourners... Strangers in a strange land, it would do us well to come back to it over and over and over again. As God's people, as we seek to walk by faith and take God at his word, as we wait for Jesus to come again and bring us home, to not be drawn to the religious or the irreligious, but to know and follow Jesus. See, all that the author has laid out for us, it requires action on our part, not passivity, This isn't about a bunch of information for you just to download and digest. It's about believing something. It's a truth to be believed. And truth believed leads to changed hearts and changed lives. You can't read this and take it all in and not see God begin to change your affections, change where your desires tend to go towards and instead align them on Christ. When you encounter Christ, it changes everything. And when we look at verses 23 and 24 in chapter 13, the author gives these final greetings. And I think a lot of times we read those and we think, I don't know who those people are. I don't really know why this matters. But there's relevance for us in this. See, what it communicates and reminds us of, once again, is that these are real people in the midst of real life who have real struggles, just like you do. This wasn't written just to a for an academic purpose, it was written to a group of people who had bonded together under the banner of Jesus, a community of Christ followers striving to be faithful in a fallen world that needed one another, that were family to each other. And in verse 25, he gives a fitting end to this glorious letter. 
Grace be with all of you. And church, that's not a throwaway phrase. Grace be with all of you is essential for life. Grace is the unmerited favor from our holy and righteous God. Grace saves you and grace sanctifies you, making you more like Christ. And it comes through Jesus. Through Jesus, we're able to receive grace upon grace upon grace. And that makes him better. Because nothing else, no one else can give that to you. Very simply put, if you want to know who God is and what he's like, you find the answer in Jesus. And if you want to know who Jesus is and what he's like, you can find the answer in the book of Hebrews. So I encourage you this week, I know we just read a bunch of it, but go back and read through the whole book of Hebrews. Download the Streetlights app and listen to the book of Hebrews read over you this week. And church, Jesus changes everything. So who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Do you know him or just know about him? What would your life look like if you actually believed and lived like all that's written in Hebrews matters? What would your life actually look like if you believed and lived like Jesus is better? Church, this letter is an exhortation to a forward-looking faith. Faith in a faithful God who's not only high and lifted up, but intimately close. The original readers of this letter were living in uncertain times that were pressing on that faith. So even now, with everything going on around us, everything that might be going on in your own life that maybe feels like the world is shaking or that your world is shaking, Let us do what we heard said so many times through our reading. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast our confession in the unshakable kingdom, which is ours in Christ, our great high priest. Nothing else lasts. Nothing else matters. Church, give yourself wholly to Jesus. And I hope this has been an encouraging year in God's word. Brothers and sisters, may God give us the grace we need to follow our King because He is worthy. He is better. He's better than anything else this world promises to you and anything else this world offers to you. He really, really is. We come to the communion table every week at Sojourn because of all that the book of Hebrews talks about. That Jesus laid down His life as a final, once-for-all sacrifice for sin. We eat the bread as a picture of Christ's body, who Jesus says is the bread of life, that his body was broken for us. We drink the cup as a picture of Christ's blood shed for us, enacting the new covenant so that we might be in relationship with God. He is a faithful friend and high priest. He is enough and he always will be. We take communion every week as an application of the preached word of God. And today, after looking back over so much of the book of Hebrews, it's once again a fitting response. Giving us opportunity to worship and give thanks that Jesus has saved us and brought us in relationship with the living God. So come forward this morning. Come forward in the spirit of repentance for where you've chased after other things besides Christ. And come forward in the spirit of faith. Faith in your gracious God and glorious Savior who died for you and rose again to give you new life now and forever. And then let's respond with lifting our voices in praise to our God and King. 
And if you're not a follower of Jesus, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning. Because when we come and we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we testify to the fact that everything I just read about what Christ has done for us is true. And so if you don't yet believe that, we just want to invite you and ask you to hang out in your seat. But I want to offer to you what God offers to you to take Jesus today. That you would take Christ today, believe on him today. Placing your faith in him, knowing, believing that he alone can rescue you from your sin. So pray and tell God that. And if you're ready to start a relationship with Christ, first just tell somebody around you. But man, we'd love for you to be a part of this community so that we can help you learn and understand and know what it looks like not only to know Christ, but follow him in your life. And those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that we had the privilege, the opportunity over this last year to walk through the book of Hebrews. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us to receive what you've spoken to us in your word, both personally and corporately. Father, would you help us to believe and live like Jesus really is better? Lord, your word makes that abundantly clear to us, but so often we struggle to believe that. And we struggle to live that way. I know I do. So Lord, we confess that to you this morning, but we pray by the power of your spirit that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ, to run the race that's set before us, no matter what's going on in the midst of our lives and our world. But Lord, help us to help one another to do that. May we hold fast our confession and do so for your glory and our good and the good of others. We pray this in Christ our King's name. Amen.